0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Fan Lab, a limited series podcast that dives deep into the heartbeat of contemporary culture and commerce. I'm your host, Jonathan Hansen, the Chief Creative Officer of Unconquered, a creative agency unlocking the emotional power of fandom for brands. We created this podcast as an extension to a report we recently published called Decoding Fandom that's available on our website at weareunconquered.co or linked in the show notes. From the world of music and entertainment to the realm of business valuations and technology, Fandom has become one of the most powerful forces in brand building over the past few years. We've seen it transform brands through our work in sports, athletic apparel, and footwear, and we can see it across culture, showing up in the people lining up for monster energy tattoos to influencer led brands like Prime Energy. Being a fan can be a profound connection that sparks a need to belong to something larger than ourselves while also giving us a chance to embrace our own unique individuality. In this series, we talk with experts in contemporary culture and fandoms, exploring it from every angle. We hope to shed light on how brands can work within fandom as a marketing tool through insightful discussions on how brands can create lifelong connections with their audience. In our latest episode of the Fan Lab, I talk with Asia Romano, who's a culture reporter for Vox Media. We dive into the evolution of fandom, the stigma associated with it, and how brands can effectively engage with fans. Asia shares her personal journey in the fandom and highlights the importance of authenticity and understanding fan communities. We also discuss the impact of technology, AI, and social media on fandom, as well as the challenges brands face in trying to navigate this space. The conversation explores examples of brands that have successfully embraced and rewarded their creators, such as Lego, Star Wars, and Disney, as well as provides valuable insights into the world of fandom and how brands can effectively engage with their fan communities. good. All right, Asia, Asia, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I've been diving down into fandom. And as, as an agency, we have really been scaling, peeling back the layers as we think through how this concept and this idea can be, to be applied to, to brands. And during our early process of developing our strategy practice, um, I found your writing, and I've just kind of gone all in, I've really enjoyed your, your um, perspective, and just the I would say the diversity of areas you focus on within culture and fandom. And, I, and I'm you. really, yeah, of course. And I'm, I'm really curious to how you've, how you found yourself um, interested in this topic.
1: Um, well, basically by doing it, uh-huh. <laughs> essentially, um, I kind of stumbled into fandom. Uh, basically I, I grew up in a very isolated rural environment. Um, I w- basically was on a farm in Tennessee and the ways I in which I connected to other fans was was largely just in in isolation through key moments of connection um, when I got to interact with other fans, which is rare. And by other fans at that point, I, I was mostly into just you know musical theater and so forth. Uh-huh. Um, but but there were things like I um, I would discover authors uh, through the library and not realize that these authors were you know beloved authors around the world with giant fandoms because I was on a farm in Tennessee. What did I know? Like there was no uh-huh. way of, of Googling it at the time. And um, so when I finally got to college and had regular internet access, (laughs) I um, went all in on search engines and immediately um, one day I Googled, I think, uh, Jane Austen and immediately found myself at uh, an early internet forum that was devoted to Jane Austen discussion, but also had a um, breakout fan fiction archive on the side where it was full of all these people writing um, what we would now call modern AUs. Um, mm-hmm. And probably at the time we also call modern age. Um, uh Basically, like, oh, it's 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 Pride and Prejudice, but it's set in a figure skating rink, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and that was my introduction to fan fiction, and I was just immediately all in, immediately all in. And so, um, you know, as as a lifelong writer, that I had actually had been one of those kids as a as a as a child who wrote fan fiction without realizing I was writing fan fiction, you know, because I was just, mm-hmm. I think that's something every um, a lot of kids do just almost naturally. They they ape the styles and the and the plots, and even you know just what they want to continue the the journeys of the characters that they read about, right? Um, mm-hmm. so so I was really kind of naturally primed for all of this, and then just really, uh, kind of cut my teeth on the internet at the moment that the internet was really finding itself and and mm-hmm. really, um, evolving past you know uh, AOL, and um and uh, uh like news forums and things like that um mm-hmm. like alt.net and really the the kind of early growth of of online fandom coincided with so much of that because uh as the platforms were were evolving for as, as internet platforms forms were evolving so were the conversations around online fandom and uh, who could who could perform online fandom? Who could be in it, and what online fandom was allowed to do? And mm-hmm. this and this was especially uh, something that if you were, for example, on LiveJournal during the early two thousands, as I was, there was just a ton of like really adult conversation around uh, the entire enterprise, and it was really hard not to take it seriously. And I took it seriously, and so what happened is that uh, through my career, like I started out as a, a journalist working in a newsroom um, as at the time there still were local newsrooms. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I, I basically just got started copy editing and then moved on from there to uh, a theater reviewing and so forth. And so I was doing a lot of freelance uh, theater reviewing and entertainment reporting just here and there locally. But I was also doing a lot of blogging about fandom. And the the thing that I did early on was to just start using fandom under my real name, which was a huge risk and not something that I think everybody can do. But I decided that the best way to kind of preempt people being shocked and horrified by my participation in fandom, because at the time it was still so scandalous, um, was to just own it. Because if I owned it and talked about it like it was any other hobby, which it was, then I found that the moment I did that, people immediately got it and were like, oh, and they became super interested in it. And so this thing that was kind of this big scary taboo subject um I was able to crack just by by being open about it mm-hmm. and and I still think to some degree that's true. I still find that some people want to treat it as this shameful um gross thing and how dare I, you know, talk about it under my own name. But for the most part I think the society has really evolved to catch up with that that mentality and now we see you know the potential of fandom. We see the the benefits of fandom, and obviously, we we understand that millions and millions of people are participating in fandom in these ways, right? So, so mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, that's how I got this career. I wrote myself into it by writing about fandom, and then I was invited to write uh, for the Daily Dot, um, or first the Mary Sue, and then the Daily Dot, and then Vox. So, yeah.
0: Great. So you mentioned a little about this, the idea of it being scandalous. You know, I never. Personally, just from my, you know, I'm obviously not as attuned attun- with it or have gone as deep as you have over the years. Um, this is something that has really piqued my interest, I would say, and I've been digging over the last six months to a year. So, you know, mm-hmm. I'm still kind of a newbie in, in in many ways, but I'm curious to why you think it's or felt that it was scandalous.
1: Um, well, it definitely was because for, I think for a number of reasons, um, the idea of fandom itself came to us from sports fandom, and sports fandom has mm-hmm. always been le- legitimized in a way mm-hmm. that pop culture fandom has not. Um, there is just there continues to be a giant divide there, and to some degree, I think that has changed, um, mm-hmm. but but not as much as you might think it would. And so, the kind of taboo under the radar fandom basically came to us via sci fi fandom from mm-hmm. the twenties and thirties and forties. Um, When you had basically these groups of people, mostly straight white men um, who were writing uh, around these, you know, really kind of what were considered niche geeky uh, fiction writers, you know Um, authors like, you know um, like H.P. Lovecraft, for example, who are considered masters of their craft today were like really little known at the time. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and and the whole subject of sci-fi was something that was considered pretty niche and, um, kind of nerdy, right mm-hmm. <laughs> And I think that that stereotype continued pretty well into I would say the 80s. Um, there was this really famous um uh SNL skit featuring William Shatner yelling at his own fans to get a life mm-hmm. um and it really uh notoriously portrayed fans the kind of what became I think the really quintessential stereotype of a fan for most of the 80s and 90s, which was this um you know nerdy, uh, thick glasses wearing, a uh, trivia-quoting Star Trek or Star Wars nerd at a convention, you know? Um, and mm-hmm. this was considered really extreme. It was extreme behavior. It was considered abnormal. We also had, this was also the era of, you know, Dungeons and Dragons and the satanic mm-hmm. Panic. So if your kid was interested in fantasy at all, like, you know, lock them up because they were being influenced by Satan. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the, I mean, we laughed, but this was real stigma. And and in some places, still is a real stigma. Um, so I think there's there there was always the stigma that sort of uh, associated with the idea of geek culture and geek fandom and in, in general. And then to add to that, you had what women in fandom were doing, which was all kinds of deviant, scurrilous things involving fanfiction and and queer characters and shipping and things that were just absolutely unheard of, even in main quote unquote mainstream fandom. <laughs> <laughs> um uh which was again all men uh, mostly all men and mostly all white people um so by the time all of this kind of came to a to a more visible or gained a more visible status in the early 2000s um the 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 move online of fandom really made so much of this of this tension visible right Mm -hmm. and allowed people to really discuss it obviously it really allowed geek culture to begin mainstreaming itself and you had the the lord of the rings fantasy kind of doing that work for us as along with harry potter um the two main flagship fandoms of the of that era right that were Mm -hmm. really what enabled fans to kind of become mainstream very quickly right within the um within pop culture at least fantasy fans um and i think once we'll, we'll talk about marvel obviously we'll talk about marvel a lot but I, I think um between the era of harry potter lord of the rings and marvel you had you you definitely still had this idea that that there was the curatorial side of fandom which was sort of the the part that was still run by i shouldn't say run but like the part that was still mostly inhabited by all of these male geeks right um that side of fandom kind of really being validated and, be, and being mainstreamed while the the more female and queer and genderqueer, and I would even arguably add people of color, the, the fandom most likely to be inhabited by people of color, that side of fandom, which we, I would think of as the transformative side, um, that fandom was, that side of fandom was still pretty much in the, in the dark, in the shadows. Um, mm-hmm. it, it was, it was still considered taboo. It was still considered, um, uh, something you couldn't do under your own name and in in many ways still isn't considered something you can do on your, on, under your own name. Um, but I think today there's more of an, there's much more of an awareness that that transformative side of fandom is where many of the geeks live and, and where many of our, our writers live and where many of our creators live. Um, I think especially with the rise, both of Marvel fandom and with the rise of Tumblr, transformative fandom has kind of become the way in which uh how to say this the type of fandom that gets more most quickly translated into the mainstream these days is actually Mm -hmm. probably coming from from transformative fandom and from tumblr and from that whole ethos does that make Mm -hmm. sense
0: it does you know and i i I also think there's almost like a a commerce side of it i think there's been a, a point now where um some of these some of the mainstream adoption has come from The brands self seeing the opportunity and trying to drive the conversation right right? Mm -hmm. um and and at the same time i think that's where there's the potential for it to to really fall off the rails and that it can become these enterprises these big these uh, these big brands if you will um talking down instead of talking with Mm -hmm. And, and and i'm curious too when you think through it and you think through um that that relationship how what do you think what do you think these these brands are getting wrong when they when they start talking with fans or like even you even mentioned fan fiction like i i don't write fan fiction but i'm a big fan of fan fiction simply because (laughs) i i i love the idea of co-creation and evolving Mm -hmm. and giving people an opportunity to own something um and maybe even see themselves in the work that they're writing and and being Mm -hmm. this form of self-expression um So, it's just going back to that question. It's, it's, what do you see? What do you see where they're going wrong with that?
1: It's a really complicated question. And I think it's only gotten more complicated over time for a bunch of different reasons. Um, I want to go back to the idea that the commerce fandom has become a thing. And I think that's definitely Mm -hmm. true, right? Because you have um, one of the, the other things, the other big mainstreaming factors I didn't mention was Comic Con, right? Because Comic Con not only brought, all sides of fandom together, mm-hmm. uh, or at least, you know, mostly English fandom together, um, English language rather.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But it also kind of really gave, it gave a real new room for brands to kind of talk to fans directly, you know, mm-hmm. and really mm-hmm. interact with them via this convention space. So it was like this real world um, way of of forming bonds and attachments. And you look at uh, brands like Funko and how they benefited from that. And you can really see you know that, that this made a huge difference right so i think i think one thing to think about when we think about fans interacting with brands is that um they they want to see that brands have the same priorities they do right and that brands are willing to go where they are um i think the brands that are on tumblr that brands that listen to tumblr and kind of follow tumblr's lead have have been really successful at this mm-hmm. um because i think you know there there there's a lot of mockery, for example, of brands on Twitter because brands on Twitter, um, and sometimes on Instagram too, often come across as having a really inauthentic voice, like they're mm-hmm. like they're trying to ape what being a, a cool fan sounds like. Exactly. <laughs> but, but but they just sound they just sound off and stilted and like they're being written by a terrible AI or something, you know, or mm-hmm. like an underpaid social media intern, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that 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 inauthenticity that inauthenticity really stands out and and fans can see it immediately. Um, I think too, there is also a sense from brands that how to say this, um, that they get to control how the conversation goes if that makes sense yes totally i i see i see a lot of times that brands want to interact with fans but then they don't enjoy the interaction so they either shut the conversation down or they will um you know cancel the entire project or whatever um when i think a better way to do that is probably to you know do a lot of test groups first (laughs) so you understand what you're getting into Mm -hmm. and really understand which part of fandom you're um you're working with because fandom is really vast and diverse it's more more vast and diverse than ever especially these days and there are more kind of um niche pockets if that makes Mm -hmm. sense niche like subgroups absolutely yeah and and they don't always agree and they don't always even within within fandoms they don't always see the you know their canon or their pop star the same way (laughs) right Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. so depending on who you're trying to reach you might have a number of different uh pitfalls to avoid so I think uh, brands should really be aware that those pitfalls exist to begin with, and and really kind of study and be careful about how they want to to try and approach fans. Um, and then, ideally, they they let the conversation evolve naturally instead of trying to you know force their own version of themselves onto fandom. It might mm-hmm. be better. Um, to interact with fans more naturally and let fans drive that that evolution, because fans will, and we see this all the time, especially creative fans. You know, they'll make fan art of the brands that they love. You know, mm-hmm. they'll they'll uh, do memes, they'll do fan art, they'll do fanfic, they'll they'll really kind of try and own own that part of of interaction as much as they can. Um, at the same time, we also have to be aware that fans are are really concerned about things like progression or progressive pro- blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, things like progressivism and equality and and most fans um i would i would say are on the progressive side because of the fans that the kind of fandoms that they're in not mm-hmm. all certainly but enough so that uh conversations of like any conversation that is socio-political is going to skew i would say at least centrist or liberal right mm-hmm. um And so that's another thing for, for brands to be aware of. It's rare that we get a situation like the Bud Light, uh, fiasco from the other day, but, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but also Mm -hmm. I think we might be seeing more of those depending on, on, um, on what, what, what brand we're talking about. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm curious, we've talked a little bit about technology and how that, that really, how I think sounds like really spawned your, um, your interest and fueled your the depth of which you're able to go and and connect with others and it seems you know we've talked about also these niche communities and how i think technology is really allowing these uh people to find these niche communities and you know over the last i don't know six months ai has been a huge theme um -hmm. you know we're seeing all sorts of uh You've seen the demise of of Twitter and uh, that community start to fall apart a little bit, and Substacks now you know coming into play, and we have all these new opportunities to to connect. I'm curious to what your thoughts are on like where you see fandom going in that in that in relationship to technology and um, as technology evolves, how it's going to either inhibit or or, or grow those fandoms.
1: Yeah, I think, um, and this kind of gets into something that I didn't really touch on regarding the the kind of brand opportunism question Mm -hmm. which is that especially in transformative fandom fans are extremely wary of of any type of attempt to exploit quote-unquote exploit their um their works or their their communities and so within within the fanfic community with as this as we've been seeing this whole ai boom Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if you've been following it or, or if you've noticed or or heard, but there was this huge pushback against, um, sorry, but there's noise outside of my apartment. I'm oh, sorry. I don't
0: hear it. You're quite all right.
1: Okay, that's good. Um, <laughs> there was this huge pushback against AIs scraping uh, AO3 yes. for data. Yes. Um, so basically, it hasn't really been proven, but it, it seems to be the case that that chat GPT and other AIS um were using data sets that came from you know the vast amount of free repositories of content on the internet right mm-hmm. the AO, AO3 is one of the biggest free repositories of content and um fans were running basically running tests to kind of see what the their AIS knew about fan fiction concepts. And it seems like the AIs at this point, the AIs know all about fan fiction, <laughs> um, <laughs> but this was really alarming for a lot of fans. And so they, they started to lock their fix. They started to basically um, try and put disclaimers on their, on their fix being like, don't scrape my content, etc. um to try and kind of counteract this idea that, that the AI is, is basically using their content and exploiting their content without their knowledge or permission. Um, and I think that really is the way that most fandom tends to react to things like this to these types of technologies mm-hmm. um you do have some people that are like that are all in and you'll always have people that are all in um but i think for the most part especially on ao3 because ao3 is such a very um kind of it sees itself as the community sees itself as like the last bastion of of protection against the the deep exploitation of the internet in a lot of ways mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. um you'll see people being very uh aloof and weary and uh, aloof and leery and wary of all types of attempts to to kind of come into fandom spaces by uh say crypto or uh ai tech or any type of big tech or or corporation right like there's just an inherent skepticism there i think yeah, we, the ai the ai boom is something i almost don't feel comfortable commenting on because it is happening so fast it's exploding so rapidly and i think mm-hmm. that there have been so little safeguards um put in place that should be put in place um you know this is not something this is not an instance where move fast and break things is ideal we want to be very slow and and yeah, thoughtful about how we proceed and i don't think that's happening at all so um and because ai has we've we've seen exactly how fast and rapidly all of this is developing right um and i don't think we are even we're even sure how fast it's going to develop so uh, i feel like making a a prediction about where it's going to go it could be
0: um well predictions yeah. are hard because if if you're wrong people uh that you know criticize you and and if you're right they say oh that was easy you could you can see that you could see the right on the wall so well, yeah all, predictions are know that, difficult.
1: Yeah, but, but we already know that that it's able to ape fiction pretty well, right? Like we've mm-hmm. seen that already. Um I just from the little that I've tried it, I've been really impressed at the way it's able to to write and characterize like um I asked it for a characterization once for just to, as a test. Um I wasn't even using ChatGPT. I was using a, an AI that was being marketed specifically for um this particular uh tool like it was being marketed as a fiction writing tool right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um so i i just like asked it to like describe a character and it gave me this really vivid description of a character and i was really impressed and that was Mm -hmm. before chat gpt and um so i think that there's we're gonna be able we're, we're already seeing that AI is doing a lot of the work of like the the actual content production that could be done by fans themselves right um but obviously what can't be replaced is the interactivity and the communion and the camaraderie and the debate and even the you know the fights and the ship wars and the mm-hmm. and the and the kind of stringent crusading that happens in the fandom um mm-hmm. you can't I mean, you can manipulate that. Obviously, we're also seeing bots manipulate that. Like the Johnny, the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial was kind of this unholy um, mingling of bots manipulating fans and fans warring against each other, right? So, mm-hmm. so we're seeing that a lot of this interaction is is unprecedented, and that the growth is is staggering and a little a little um, overwhelming, to be honest. <laughs>
0: It mm-hmm. yeah, when, when I think about the the scraping side of it, it you know, it, it does call to, to at least it calls attention to me and it reminds me of just the human side of how we kind of do the same thing when we create. I mean mm-hmm. I, I almost think there's like some kind of irony in there and that like rather, like for example before I before I before I started doing or started the agency I was a I was a freelance uh photographer working for magazines and newspapers and and the way i got into that is i found photographers i loved and that was my entry point and i studied and i studied and studied and you take little pieces and you learn and you grow and um there's this idea of like you're mentally scraping all the work and your own your own um influences and then you you, mm-hmm. you do kind of come out on your own in, in the end but there there was a phase where you know i was very much copying um as a way of learning to, to my idols um Absolutely. and when i think it, yeah, and what I think is interesting is like when I, we, we hear the the fear like Getty put I think is suing an AI developer for its scraping of their images um which I think is interesting because it, you know as I just said it's it's kind of like almost a human learning process or personal exploration of when you start um even fan fiction in itself absolutely as, well, as part of the, that.
1: I think the the difference though is that like um when you're doing that on your own and you're you're going through your, your own journey, there's not a copyright issue there. Whereas yes. fans are always yes. fans are always in danger of of having um it, it basically they write under the the grace of fair use. Um mm-hmm. but but fan fiction as a medium has never been tested in court. So the goal is always to try and just stay, you know, fly into the radar. And I, I think that the skepticism and fear largely comes from from long experience in years past of having of works being uh, you know see and de- ceased and desisted, uh, mm-hmm. which is basically if, if anybody isn't familiar with that like a c and d is when you get um a notice a copyright notice to to take down your content or your ip host does it for you uh mm-hmm. you know um your so it, there's a long history within those kind of early years of fandom of entire archives being deleted overnight because you know, uh, a hosting service got and uh, um, a um and d order, and they didn't know what they were doing, so they just took the whole archive down because they thought it was legal, right? So mm-hmm. AO3 exists to prevent that by explicitly protecting fans under the banner of fair use. Um So I think the the idea that emerged from that is that fans need to have direct control over their own content so that they can control the way that it gets presented you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um because what if uh you know what if an ai starts writing fanfic you know <laughs> then mm-hmm. then how does that work under copyright right so it, it's a it's kind of an emerging evolving question and i'm sure we're going to be dealing with it a lot more in the future but um but i think that's where it all comes from
0: mm-hmm. And, and we talked a little bit about this and I think it's in theme is this idea of co-creation and some, I feel like some brands have really owned it and, and others have been really scared as, as we've, as we've, we've touched on a little bit and kind of just avoided the conversation altogether. Um, but I would love to hear if you have any examples in mind that where you think they really honored and rewarded their creators for the, for the work that they did. Um, there's, there's something, you know, I was, I was on Legos website. I was a huge Lego nut when I was a kid. And, mm-hmm. um, I just have just to see that the brand evolve as, a, as a, you've, I've grown older, um, and they've really, I think, embraced their, their big fans and fans of other, other enterprises by mm-hmm. allowing them to submit their own designs, giving them royalties, having other, the whole community upvote them, which then gets them in front of, um, you know, the creative team and to to make those decisions of what happens and to me that's 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 i think it's a great example but i'm curious if you have any any in in your mind that um just sort of ring true
1: absolutely i was i was going to bring up lego as one of my my picks as well Mm -hmm. Mm because i i do think they are so good at um at embracing fans and and they really get that um that fandom can be a generative space right for this um I think Mm -hmm. star wars to a large degree has also done this Mm
0: -hmm. um
1: star wars has always been really good about um you know elevating fan art and fan works and fan writers and um and even like fan trivia nerds um and really kind of giving them spaces to to feel valued i think disney also probably i mean you can say a lot of of things both positive and negative about disney but they really Mm -hmm. do understand their fans well Mm -hmm. and you know, they you could argue they made a whole movie for furry fans. So like um <laughs> like they know their they know their audience really well and they know um they know how to to interact with them in ways that um that power the brand, as it were. I think Netflix for the most part is doing pretty well at this. They're they're kind of struggling. Um they've struggled, I think, with with their fan platform ta-dum. <laughs> mm-hmm. but um but I think that's mostly that's mostly about the branding right and and not about the their ability to cultivate fan loyalty Mm -hmm. Um, so i kind of feel like they will get there eventually um you know there in smaller spaces there are um there are a lot of really like small presses that have done really well a lot of small comics fandoms that are comics brands that have done really well for example in cultivating um their fans especially as comics fandom has kind of boomed over the last decade um there are a lot of you know manga publishers for example that are also really good at, at and you know things like Crunchyroll Crunchyroll is excellent at um mm-hmm. interacting with fans and giving fans a space to to feel like they have um that they can interact and exert ownership over over the the Crunchyroll kind of um content
0: mm-hmm. i
1: think that those things are those things are kind of born out of geek culture in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. but we also see it too with things like Nike, like Nike is obviously very good at, at, at responding to its fans. Um, I think a lot of this is, you kind of see it sort of on both ends, like on the very small niche end, you find success and on the very huge corporate end with tons of resources to really dig into like the, the micro analytics of all this, you also see success, right? Um, I don't know. I don't know necessarily where that leaves brands that are kind of in the middle, (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: Um,
1: but I I think that the thing that all of those brands have in common is attention, you know, they just pay a lot of attention to their fans and they, they listen and understand them. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. They listen and they also value the creativity. I think that's another thing because, um, we see we've seen other attempts to be to interact with fandom kind of go off the rails um because the brands that were trying to do those types of you know creative inter- interactions didn't understand what the fans wanted and when they found out what the fans wanted they were like oh no this isn't what we what we expected you know we didn't expect you to like start bringing queer ships into our you know our very heterogeneous space mm-hmm. that's about you know celebrating characters you know, you, mm-hmm. you have to kind of be aware of that stuff and prepare for it and then either either find ways to incorporate it or make a space for it that doesn't leave fans feeling like you're, you know, censoring or shutting them out or, you know, blocking blocking out parts of the conversation, basically.
0: Yeah. What I think is interesting is we, we've we been talking a lot when we talk about a lot of fandom discussion we've been having seems to be kind of if you look at like the fandom journey of someone seems to be the most controversy or at least difficulty with change seems to ha- be happening like in that later stage. Like if you were th- if we look at maybe like the introduction, the early the early exploration as being like a tourist um, and then like maybe the end or tourist. I won't say the end but the more extreme um part of the spectrum being the ch- the champion it seems like there's more of that unwanted change happening later in that r- relationship with it do would you agree with that
1: i i don't really think so because like i you know I, I did reported on this on the Outlander fandom once and the Outlander fandom was full of women who had never been in fandoms before. And they were all in their and mm-hmm. mo- like on average, they were all in their mid 40s. Mm-hmm. So these were women who had had no experience of outside outside this one fandom at all. Like they had basically mm-hmm. all showed up for this TV show that they'd fallen in love with. Um, and so their fandom dynamics were kind of like, I don't know, like an anthropologist's dream because they were kind of in their own isolated Mm -hmm. um space right they weren't really influenced by an ongoing fan like they weren't most of them were not lifelong fans which super like fully surprised me because i would think that you know these would be full of like long-time romance fans with tons of fan fiction you know days behind them Mm
0: -hmm. but
1: or you know things like that but no they were all kind of brand new and um and their 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 fandom dynamics were fully formed from the outset you know so i think a lot of this is down to um you know, where you kind of wind up, quote, unquote, as a fan, Mm -hmm. some of it is down to, you know, your individual trajectory, I think, through fandom. Mm
0: -hmm. A
1: lot of it is also, I think, down to which social media platforms you end up and how those, those, those social media platforms enable or discourage various types of behaviors. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, if you're a fan on Instagram, you are probably much less likely to engage in mass brigading or harassment because you don't have, you're not on Twitter and there's not a hashtag at your disposal, right? Mm-hmm. Like your interaction is is more actively going to be about, um, you know, interacting with the brand or interacting with the influencer, right? That you like kind of one-on-one mm-hmm. and you might talk to other fans so, to some extent via DM, but you're not going to have like a community, et cetera. You're going to mm-hmm. have to go outside Instagram for that, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Um, that's a really interesting perspective I didn't think about it that way <laughs>
1: well I think it depends like it, it honestly it, I don't think that you're wrong I don't think that um I do think that to some degree that as you go through fandom you can you know you you find your way around more so you get more into things that you like and you know more about how to navigate the space right so it makes sense that you would become more invested as you go along but I also think that there are lots of lifelong fans who who never get that far, that you know, they stay casual fans, they go to Comic Con once every few years or to Dragon Con or wherever. And that's their way of doing fandom. You know, they they are content to, you know, maybe they read a subreddit every once in a while, but they they interact with mainly through with the canon and, and enjoying and appreciating their particular media, right? Um and I'm that way with different things like for example if you asked me i'd say i'm a huge true detective fan but in reality my way of performing true defect, true detective fandom was um by obsessively reading subreddits and lurking mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and never really stepping outside that role like I, I i think i've commented all of twice ever on a, a true mm-hmm. direct, true detective subreddit and i was i'm not interested in reading fan fiction about it that's just not my thing like i just want to kind of interact with the canon and the literature around it and read all the meta theories and and that's fine and i'm never gonna own like i don't know a rust coal mug or something mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> um, whereas with harry potter you know i spent years in that fandom and, and had you know had all the books had all like not all but several pieces of merchandise and obviously was a huge fanfic writer um so i think it, a lot of it is really um contextual and dependent on the individual fan and also where they are in their in their life journey you know
0: yeah i found myself in a very similar position that you just described where um i get kind of like personally obsessed but not to the point where i'm having conversations online um i may indulge it in my own way for example like i love i love seinfeld and it's something that's probably on my tv all the time i would say every day it's it's playing at one point in the day and in the credits, you know, it's New York based and they have they have a um, they show some of the the facades of, of of New York. And there's a restaurant in my neighborhood. I live on the Upper West Side, home to Jerry and, and Elaine. Oh, nice. And um, they have they show this restaurant, Papardella, And as, as I think they try and place it as Poppy's restaurant. But um, I actually went there two weeks ago just because I was like, oh, it's still around. It's, it's on the show. I have to, I have to go there and try it. That's um, cool. And I think that's been probably one of the more, I don't even want to say extreme, but the most I've I've gone out to to experience and be a part of something bigger um, mm-hmm. versus like making it more just for me and, or, you know, my close, close friends who are, who happen to be really into it as well. Um, so I, as I, as I, as I go through and I read more and I, and I, and I think about our conversation, I I always try to place myself because I, you have the extremes of like the stands and the, and the folks that are out there who are really into it um but for me it's 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 always been like a i think a time commitment i I, it's hard for me Mm -hmm. to to make the room for things like that and i'm always really fascinated by the people who um it's that important to them where they carve out huge chunks of time of their of their day to to engage and and do it
1: yeah it is and there have been moments when i just haven't been able to devote as much time to fandom as i'd like because Mm -hmm. you know various real life commitments and so forth and you kind of do have to have a balancing act and sometimes you pull away. I know a lot of fans who 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 kind of gradually moved away from fandom not by choice but just because real life took them other directions and they didn't have as much time for fandom. And I think that happens a lot, but also I think a lot of people think that you can kind of come back whenever you want depending on on what your latest obsession is and how involved you get. Mm-hmm. Um I think to some extent that's true, but again, it's just different for everybody. I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily I don't think you have to have necessarily a a limit or a a maximum amount of time or like a minimum amount of time Mm -hmm. uh that makes i mean even if you like something from afar i think that that counts my i've had discussions with friends about what constitutes quote-unquote being in fandom Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) and i tend to err on like the very Lazy side of just being like, if you like the thing, you're the fan, and and you're part of the fan community, no matter how big or or small, right? So, um, well, I tend to err either-
0: on that side. I tend to be on that side as well. I, I don't, yeah, yeah. And I I do I, I do wonder by I think sometimes even just putting that word fan up, it automatically either puts you know defense mechanisms. Uh, you know and and heightened being like oh just because of the label that is associated with that label um yeah this is why
1: i also really hate the word super fan like i hate it like i Uh i catch myself using it more and more lately but i i don't like it i just think it's it's a really um i i find it a commodified way to describe something that every fan does (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. or is likely to do so
0: Well, i think it also at least from my perspective it seems to have negative connotations when you call someone a super fan because it i mean obviously we've seen cultural examples where uh, super fans can and can behave in really horrible ways and i think when you classify people as super fan at least for me it automatically i mightly think like oh they're going to be part that's going to go after the folks that don't necessarily prescribe to their idea of what
1: right, fans should right. be doing right right well i think the problem like i think there's an underlying problem that you've identified here which is that we don't really have good terms for like different kinds of fans and different mm-hmm. um different types of fan behaviors and activities mm-hmm. um Because, like, to the best of my knowledge, superfan was kind of an invented marketing term that was originally meant to be a positive, you know, description of a fan who is extremely active and they and they're extremely um, commodified. (laughs) You know, Uh they, they do they spend lots of money on the fandom that they're in and they they spend lots of hours and and active time in that fandom or on that fandom idol, whatever it is, and so. In marketing terms, it was meant to be kind of like, here's your target audience. You want the super fans, you know, that's who mm-hmm. you want to engage with. But the moment that term hit the you know, the media, it immediately immediately became a a way of pre- I think pejoratively describing fandom and fans. And which is part of what's wrong with it because I think that to some degree, any type of word that we put out there is going to be used that way, right? Like mm-hmm. <laughs> because the the media is going to do what it does, and it's going to, it's going to type it's going to like stereotype and and
0: put a um, box around it
1: yeah it's going to it's going to try and label things and and present fans in ways that are extreme um i think k-pop is such a really good example of this because for the longest time k-pop fans and media were just so like they were just belittled and mocked in every possible way um even as they were you know arguably changing the music industry and changing streaming certainly and changing international fandom and wave after wave after just so many ways K-pop fandom has changed the world, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, And doing it completely without any type of respect at all from mainstream media, especially in in the US. And then the moment that they, the moment that BTS fans started to, and K-pop fans started to like fuck with Trump. Mm -hmm. (laughs) and. in 2020 suddenly suddenly finally at last all the media was like k-pop fandom is good now <laughs> You know,
0: and mm-hmm. it's, just, mm-hmm.
1: it's like you know they were always they were always doing what they were doing like the, it's not like they suddenly became something that that was good once you could weaponize them against trump right like mm-hmm. it, it, but i think that 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 type of experience is probably going to keep happening for for different fan communities especially as we um as we see the you know the internationalization of fandom becoming more and more um mainstream and more and more uh common i think we're going to see a lot of that type of it really riding off whole communities until they they do something that you like
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> or totally. that at least
1: that you understand something that you understand and want to to weaponize so
0: yeah, yeah we're getting we're getting a little close on time and i just want to i think close maybe in one with one more question and um i'm really curious to and this is we talked a little bit about this uh a few minutes ago when i was talking through maybe the resistance to change and mm-hmm. um and i'm I'm curious i think there, there is a point where creators may get nervous or um be be hesitant to try and evolve characters i think ultimately like great storytelling is this you see this evolution of a character and maybe they start as one thing and you get to watch them change and become something else and how you can how you can sort of stick to this idea of great storytelling um with while trying to still balance and not disrupt the 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 ecosystem or the fandom around um that helps support the the brand in itself and Mm -hmm. how how you think you know, I'm I wondering how. I know it's it's a very difficult question, I think, and it's one where I'm just curious in your experience if you if there are case studies or anything that you think where you know properties brands have been able to navigate that well.
1: Hmm. Hmm. I'm thinking.
0: You know, one one thing that comes to mind and um you know I mean, all the
1: all the examples I can think of are bad ones. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> Yeah, I know they I think that the the um the negative ones get a lot more attention than the, the 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 more positive ones. But you know, I think from a recent example, um I think of the The Last of Us as as maybe one. Mm-hmm. Um it where that they, they had, you know, I didn't play the game. I'm not a I'm not I don't really do video games myself but um it seems like they really added to that conversation or into that that world instead of um allowing the 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 phantom to dictate it they kind of added to it through the creation of this of the of the of the film and it got or the series and it got me into it um Yeah, they when thought I was...
1: really oh, go ahead
0: No, please, please
1: i was just going to say that they got really thoughtful and creative with the world building of that show and Mm -hmm. um the there was an extremist pocket of of the last of us fans who were were mad that the series wasn't more quote-unquote like the video game Mm -hmm. um but they really banked on the part of fandom that was there not for like the the violent gameplay mechanics um Mm -hmm. and that was there for you know the world building and the storytelling and that really paid off for them, right? So mm-hmm. I think there's value also in just knowing which fans are worth listening to and which aren't, you know. So mm-hmm, totally, um, which is really important. I mean, look at the Bud Light thing. Like we, you need to know which fans you're gonna, um, you're gonna. I, I as know, often
0: I, ones I, you're okay with. I mean,
1: yeah, we on this is a this is going to be the the continuing conversation of the era as as as, as far right politics and ideologies grow more and more mainstream um they're also finding more and more spaces within fandom right Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um so that's that's definitely going to be something that that brands will have to listen to and be aware of and decide how they want to proceed with because those those voices are going to be out there but um in terms of storytelling obviously i think um not listening to those people are is good um Mm -hmm. i also think uh they're the heartstopper fandom on netflix i think uh heartstopper was not a show that i think anybody expected to do as well as it did but um the creator of heartstopper uh was has a long has a long fandom pedigree um mm-hmm. and she had written other uh stories that were actually more um actively about being in fandom and specifically mm-hmm. being in in queer fandom so i think that kind of set itself up to do really really well with fans and did do really well with fans because it it, the adaptation was really faithful to the the story and it also kind of really understood fandom tropes and what fans wanted to see um so i would say that one is a really good example um you know disney just in general is really good at um not always i will say not always it's it tends to be hit and miss pixar certainly is very good at really kind of giving fans what they want with every new um succeeding uh -hmm. story in a in Mm -hmm. a a franchise Mm -hmm. um turning red i think is an excellent example of a story that was organically created by um you know by listening to the transformative fangirl in all of us, basically, mm-hmm. right? Um, rather than kind of shutting it down and being like, this is shameful, we shouldn't, you know, pay any attention to this specific group of fans. You know, they kind of honored that that spirit and made an entire movie about like 90s fangirls and uh, <laughs> and, and and in Toronto and and also it, you know, honored a specific diaspora experience. And I think that that, that movie kind of tells you. Um, you don't necessarily have to have like a legacy franchise to do that sort of of thinking and creative creating with, you know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, you just have to be aware that fandom exists and and take it seriously and, and respect it, you know. And you'll find plenty of ways to kind of um, use that to augment your storytelling. I think.
0: Oh, I think that I think that word right there, respect, is a key a key piece to a lot of what we've talked about today. Is how brands can can really honor that as res- showing their showing their fans respect um mm-hmm. I, I, I love that idea um Asia where can where can listeners find find you on social
1: I am on well I'm <laughs> on Twitter like everybody else but who knows how long mm-hmm. Twitter is going to exist at this point um mm-hmm. but I'm on Twitter at Asia Romano uh I'm on Tumblr at a bookshop and um on Vox obviously under my byline at Asia Romano and uh that's about it. you can also find me on LinkedIn, et etc if you need to which um,
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. uh, I, I am very ambivalent about all of those more um those those more adult com- uh-huh. commer- commercialized spaces but I i'm I'm it. there as well. I'm pretty much everywhere um as either my real name or under the the fandom handle bookshop so that's it. <laughs> okay.
0: All right, Asia, well, thank you so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed the conversation and and appreciate your perspective.
1: Yes, no problem. It was my pleasure.
0: Thank you so much for listening into the Fan Lab. We hope you've enjoyed our deep dive into the cultivating world of fandom. And as we continue to explore it, we invite you to take the next step with us. Head on over to our website and download our newest report, Decoding Fandom. It's full of insights and case studies telling the story of how fandom can create long-term value for brands. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and stay tuned to our next episode.